You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Yes, it is Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week... Chalk Talk, you've always known opera is gay. I mean, Niklaus and Hoffmann, Octavian and the Marshallin. But it's Pride Month, and we're celebrating the operas that are explicitly gay and have devised a scorecard to determine what is the gayest opera. Plus, two-minute drill, Roberto Alagna is not a fan of the iconic Italian auteur Pier Paolo Pasolini, and the first stills from the Leonard Bernstein biopic I get the film canceled even before its release. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You just click follow Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. And of course, send us a voice memo. Get your voice heard. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that OBS beer coaster. It's outdoor drinking season. You're going to need it. And OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take. The whole team is here. The whole team is back. Podcast only. Oliver Camacho. Uh, it's so great to be back with you all, everybody. No longer on the Dallas Opera Network. So expect not to hear so much about the Dallas Opera Network anymore. <laughs> <laughs> or ever again. <laughs> I mean, we're not against Texas in general, but, you know. <laughs> we're Just also Texas not, in particular. not against yeah. Texas. <laughs> Matt, Matt Cummings. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have to comb my hair for this recording anymore. Hey, yo. Joe, Weston Williams. I'm so excited to be able to curse. Bastard. Oh, my Lord. This is <laughs> really this going, is going for downhill it. very quick. Ashley yeah, Hardgrave, yeah. please resuscitate this show now. Oh, don't worry. There will be plenty of cursing from me because let me give you this headline. <laughs> Some Tampa Bay Rays players refuse to wear a pride rainbow and say that they reject gay behavior. This comes from an article talking about the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, their annual LGBTQ pride night that was held on Saturday. Most of the players on the team wore a rainbow on their uniform to signify that folks are welcome in their ballpark. Mm -hmm. But there were a few specific players, and I'd like to make sure they get their moment in the sun. Oh, good. Jason Adam, Jalen Beek, Brooks, Riley, Jeffrey Springs, and Ryan Thompson rejected the rainbow and did not wear it on their jersey when, by the way, they lost to my beloved Chicago White Sox. <laughs> uh, and they say, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just maybe that we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of marriage. It's no different. It's not judgmental. It's not looking down. I I can't keep reading the article because I'm going to set my house on fire. Um, just real quickly to those five <laughs> players in particular. You well, at least there Jesus weren't any logical fallacies there. <laughs> you may say that your version of Jesus told you not to wear a rainbow icon on your jersey where you throw a ball for money, but my Jesus loves everybody, including all of my gay friends. So kick rocks. What a bunch of bastards. I I still cannot believe that Oliver won the OBS basketball game that we did. If you haven't watched that episode, <laughs> check it out. It's on it's on the website operaboxcore.com. Look, first of all, kudos to you, Oliver, for winning, but I'm still in shock. Let's talk some opera. 
Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. Happy Pride Month, dear listeners. We are going to crunch the numbers during this episode. If you remember last year, we celebrated opera's queerest moments, which wasn't necessarily an opera about gay pride, but it certainly was pretty gay. This year, we're going... We're taking a deep dive right into gayness, and I almost said something very gross here, like we're going to muff dive, but we don't want to hear <laughs> nope, that. Nope, <laughs> nope, 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 <laughs> But you can say it now, because yes. Dallas is history. You're going to get... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but you can't say man. it if you want to keep me on the show. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, trade-offs. Uh, <laughs> and we thought we would... Well, as you know, opera's always been gay, but maybe in the past, let's say, 80 years, 75 years or so... Uh, opera has become much more explicitly gay with characters like the Countess <laughs> Gershwitz in Lulu and every Benjamin Britten opera. <laughs> True. <laughs> and we, we thought it might be useful for us and for you to score operas on just how gay they are. And we are talking about gayness explicitly. So points if a character explicitly, explicitly identifies as gay or lesbian, let's say 10 points. Uh, points if the character is central to the plot, let's say 10 points. Points if there is a meet-cute moment, let's give that five points. And, and by the way, that's M-double-E-T. When I first heard that, I thought it was M-E-A-T. I was like, meet-cute. <laughs> like hamburger cute? <laughs> a, little, a little cute little ham. I didn't know what to think. Okay. Points if there is a same-sex kiss, let's say five points. Points if there's nudity should really get a lot of points, but we don't want to encourage that all the time because, okay, you know, yeah. nobody can... Have, Only when it's tasteful. You have to have the uh, intimacy coordinator, and that's expensive. So five points yeah. for nudity. Five points for a gay sex scene. Fifteen well, and points. And just to be clear, those yeah. last three categories, that that has to be from the libretto, right? We're not talking regie theater. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Fifteen points if... The gay character has a happy outcome. I know that's going to be really hard. <laughs> um, five points each if the composer or librettist is an out homosexual. Uh, so that's going to be our metric. And we have done the work for you all. And we are going to go down the list and finally determine for you all what is the gayest opera. And we might need a tiebreaker, as it seems. But uh, starting with what I assume would be the gayest opera just by how popular it is and how easy it is to see this show. Three Decembers by Jake Heggie with a libretto by Gene Scher based on a libretto, based on a play by Terrence McNally. We know Jake is gay. We know Terrence McNally is gay uh, or was gay, I should say. Uh, one of the three characters in Three Decembers is the gay son, Charlie, uh, and is definitely central to the plot and gayness is addressed. There is even a offstage partner that's addressed. Um, so when you add up all those factors, there's no sex in this show. It's a family show. Uh, we get a about total, family. <laughs> we get a total of 25 points. But if we mm. were to have counted mm. how often this opera has been performed, it surely would have won. So we're, you're talking about the the granddaddy of 
opera gaze of them all, you have to be talking about Benjamin Britten. Like, you can't do a game like this without well, including I, I a Britten I thought you were going to say Handel. Well, you know. <laughs> little column A, little column B. Um, but it went, so much of Britain operas is about subtext and about what is not said. That if you're looking for the probably the most explicit example of gayness in a Britain opera, that would be in his last opera, which is Death in Venice, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. features the uh, renowned German novelist Gustav von Aschenbach traveling to Venice and becoming utterly captivated by a uh, Polish adolescent that he sees there. So much so that he dies of cholera because he can't bring himself to leave the city. That is and- <laughs> how it uh, works sometimes. Uh, so... 10 points pretty explicitly identifies as gay and 10 points uh he's really almost the only character in the in the opera there's a large chorus the 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 young adolescent is played by a, a dancer it's a non-speaking role and then there are six or seven people that he meets around venice who are all played by the same baritone uh so it doesn't get much more central than that it's a it's almost a monodrama we're not going to call it a meet cute. There's fortunately not a kiss or nudity or a sex scene, uh, given the circumstances of this relationship. Uh, there's certainly not a happy <laughs> ending. Um, and with five points for Benjamin Britten, no points for Mafanwi Piper, that brings the total for Death in Venice to also 25. Tied with three Decembers. I just tell me a Britain opera that isn't gay. They're, they're all gay. I mean, that's awesome. I love Noise that. Flood? I mean, Midsummer's no. <laughs> not especially gay. It's, it's about fairies. <laughs> it's it's kind of gay, Cummings. It's, it's kind of gay. It's I mean, a little it, gay. It's more bestial bestiality than this case. Oh God! Uh, so speaking, uh, speaking of somewhat gay, I want to bring uh, Lulu to the table uh, because, of yes. course, I do. Um, now this you is can't help yourself. Very on brand. I do think that this is one that I feel like is going to score a little bit lower than some of the ones we're going to talk about. But I think you do have to give it a pass, considering it was not just being written near the beginning of the 20th century, but also uh, being actively written during the uh, Nazi uh, riot, Nazis coming around in Germany. So I think like any representation coming out of that is genuinely really historic and impressive. So I'm going to give a, so obviously the gay character is the Countess Geschwitz. Um, so we're going to give her a, a 10 points and we're going to, she is pretty central to the plot. She's important, but she's not the main character. So I will give oh, who her. Who is the main character of Lulu? It could be anybody. Actually, fun fact: we don't actually know her name for sure is Lulu, but oh. uh, that's a discussion for another time. Should not have opened Pandora's box. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, is that a, is that a Vatican joke? That was that was a good one. Uh, <laughs> what? So five points for uh, I think the central uh, uh, centrality of Geschwitz to the plot. Not much happening in the other categories. I mean, we've seen uh, same-sex kisses in, in gay sex scenes, but that's mostly Reggie stuff. Um, I will um, throw a bone to uh, the composer librettist being an out-homosexual. I'm just going to give a couple points um, for Frank Vedekin, who the, you know, the libretto is based on his work, his uh, Lulu plays, um, who is probably by uh, according to his personal writings, but ultimately that's not going to be enough to say it. We're really only talking about 15 points here. So it was a good start, a good attempt, but um, yeah, I think an important opera, but maybe not quite gay enough for this uh, bracket. 
there's a bonus category which we didn't mention, which I think Ashley wanted to contribute to oh, the yeah. conversation, <laughs> which which bumps up your your uh, submission mm. by. 10 oh, absolutely! Points. Uh, I believe that question, Ashley, if I'm reading my notes correctly, is would any main character seamlessly transition to the drag stage? And absolutely, if you're talking about <laughs> Geschwitz, who literally changes her clothes to be more femme, like Lulu, to get her out of jail, that's very drag queen. If we're talking about Lulu herself. Absolutely, Lulu would. So I'm going to throw an extra 10 points. Put, bump it up to 25. That's my and, final score. And I would love a male soprano as Lulu, by the way. That, oh, absolutely. That's, that's what I would go That'd see. That'd be great. Moving on to an opera we've been talking about a lot lately. That opera is none other but Fire Shot Up in My Bones by Terrence Blanchard, uh, which is based on the memoirs of Charles Blow, uh, who is an out bisexual man. But actually, it's not made explicit in the libretto. There's a lot of there's a lot about his questioning. There's a lot about his journey. There's the whole nightmare dance sequence of shirtless men swirling around him when he's pledging the fraternity. Um I am going to still say that he should get the points for that, just given that it's based on a real person who yeah. we do know is bisexual and is very. Count it. We're we're get we're getting it we're getting it count it um, definitely count it as the central character of the of the tit, the titular bones in which the fire is shut up. Um, <laughs> ten points for for young Charles Baby, uh, but there is no. Um, there's no man-on-man action in this opera. No meet-cute, mm. no same-sex kiss, no Tragic. nudity, no gay sex scene. Mm. But Sorry, unlike most of these other operas, spoiler alert, there is a relatively happy outcome for the gay character, um, which will bring the the total for Fire Shot Up On My Bones to 35, currently in the lead. Leader. There you go. Leader. All right, then we're going to what one would imagine would be the gayest opera, the Harvey the Harvey <laughs> Milk um, opera by Stuart Wallace and Michael Corey. Uh, clearly, gay character central to the plot that is explicitly out homosexual. Two, in fact, um, two central gay characters. Um, yes, there is sex. Yes, there is kissing on stage. But that's about where the tally ends. Uh, this opera ended with only 40 points on our scorecard. I mean, I imagine you could make uh, Harvey Milk a drag character, but um, that's not necessary. <laughs> uh, but, but I will say this, that Opera Theater St. Louis... What about Diane Feinstein? Uh, <laughs> ...is is uh, remounting this show. Uh, it, it sort of has had a weird history. It didn't wasn't that well-received because Stuart Wallace's music is not necessarily that approachable. And the opera was long and a little bit too non-linear thread, uh, so they are they have revamped it. And the uh, the uh, second version was supposed to premiere right around the pandemic, but then mm. the pandemic happened, and the new version yeah. of the show finally yeah. will receive its re premiere this summer at our friends at the show Opera Theater St. Louis. So who knows if this is going to climb up the ranks of one of the most popular gay themed shows? I hope so. 
I hope so I really too, hope so. but I hope it doesn't climb as high as my next selection here, which is <laughs> Lessons in Love and Violence. And if you know me, you know I love me some George Benjamin. Uh, I thought great... you were going to say you love yourself some love and violence. Love and violence. <laughs> I mean, I do listen to a lot of vote sex. So, uh, so essentially, uh, this—if you don't know the opera—it's it's basically a sort of a, a sort of a fictionalized retelling about about uh, King. Oh God, which king is it? King Charles? No, King Edward the Second ah, yes. uh, and his lover. Ooh. I had to I had to look that one up. I can't remember the kings to save my life. Uh, where's George to help me when you need him? Um, uh, I, I think that he, could, he gets 10 points right off the gate by uh, identifying – they identify literally in the first line. Uh, they, they out the king as gay and being in love with a man, Gaveston, uh, which is kind of great. Um, uh, obviously, Gavis, Gaveston and the king are very central to the plot. There is not a meet cute. These people do not have meet cutes. This is a very acerbic libretto. Uh, there is a same sex kiss that I could find. I've not actually, uh, I've only listened to it. I've never seen it. So I don't know for a fact if there's nudity. I wouldn't be surprised, but I can't give it points for that. Um, same uh, with the gay sex scene. Wouldn't be surprised. Can't prove it. There is not a happy outcome for anybody in this opera, no. which should come as no surprise. But I do want to give a few points to uh, George Benjamin himself who is, uh, of course, an out gay man. And would would any character uh, transition to the drag stage? Yeah, he'd be a literal drag queen, very literally. So that's an extra oh, 10 points there. there yeah, it is. you see what I did there? So that's a 45 points for lessons in love and violence. So speaking of non-happy endings, um, we're going to now go to Brokeback Mountain. Uh, the music by Charles Wernian, Wernian with a libretto by the original author of the short story on which it's based, Annie Pruel. Um, this is an opera about the closet, so they get no points for identifying explicitly as gay. But there are two gay characters, or two homosexual characters. Uh, and there's definitely meet cutes. There's definitely sex and nudity and everything you would ever want as a gay man to see on the stage. All the good stuff. <laughs> and the uh, composer Charles Warren is also uh, an out homosexual. So this opera gets the same amount of points, forty five, uh, as Lessons in Love and Violence, because of course there's not a happy outcome for anybody. Tragic. Uh, also, uh, we've got uh, in a sort of similar line, Life and Deaths of Alan Turing. It's right there in the title. He's not going to do well. Um, but uh, apparently he's going to die more than once. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're les petits morts, as the French say. No, uh, obviously, we've got uh, um, uh, out homosexual in the, in the libretto. Uh, the, uh, he's central to the plot. There is a meet cute. Uh, now, I will say this opera is not actually fully out yet. So some of this could be subject to uh, change. It's not out yet. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, there it is. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate you. So, uh, Oliver, feel free to correct me from your memory because there's no real synopses of this online. But I believe there is a same-sex kiss that we think will happen. Um, there may or may not be nudity. Who can say? Is there a sex scene? 
maybe who can say so it'll be very sweet if there is yeah i think so it's a it's a really uh, this is one that i think that everyone really should go out and see once it does come out because the uh, when it was in process when oliver and i saw it we we saw the workshop and it's going to make its debut where it was workshop the chicago opera theater and uh, can you uh, give us the name of the uh, composer and librettist? If you can look oh, I believe the composer, uh, if I wrote it down, I believe it's Justine Chen, isn't it? Uh, yes. And the librettist is Joe. Uh, oh, my God. My notes okay. are just everywhere. That's totally fine. <laughs> while, while you're figuring that out, um, it is going to premiere this upcoming season at Chicago Opera Theater. And it was very sweet and very yeah. lyrical. Uh, I think, and and also very creative use of the chorus. I think it has yeah. a chance of being in the standard repertoire, and I cannot wait for it to come around again. The librettist is David Simpatico, who incidentally earns us an extra five points oh. for okay. his. Okay, so you knew he was gay just to know his name. You yeah. Just, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's this spreadsheet that doesn't cover all the information, information. I think the main character would seamlessly transition onto the drag stage. I think an Alan Turing computer whiz themed drag show would be pretty great. So I'm going to give this opera 45 points for now. Well, as the resident lady on the panel, I'm going to bring you some operas about some gay ladies. We're going to start with Ricky Ian Gordon's 27 with libretto by friend of the show, Royce Favreck, first premiering in 2014. If we're going quickly down the rubric here, does a character explicitly identify as gay? Yes, this opera explores the relationship of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas as the artistic salons that were held in their Paris apartment. So yeah, real gay. Uh, Is there a gay character central to the plot? Yes, we're going to give that 10 points. Is there a meet cute? No, we actually start with flashbacks of the already established salon. Is there a same sex kiss? Who can say? Do you know how hard it is to find this libretto for free? So no, we're not going to give it any points there. Is there nudity? These were lesbians at the turn of the First World War, so we're going to say no. Is there a sex scene? Absolutely not. Is there a happy outcome for the gay character? I'm going to say yes, because Alice lives on at the end of the show to protect Gertrude's legacy and defend it, which is how she chose to spend her life. Is the composer, composer excuse me, or the librettist an out homosexual? Five points, so yes to both. Uh, let's see. Would a main character seamlessly transition to the drag stage? I know I'm the one that proposed this, but for this one particular opera, this is tougher. A drag king? Maybe, but probably not. So we're going to give it a total of 45 points. So this stays in the territory of operas like Lessons in Love and Violence, Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, and Brokeback Mountain, except this one is not as depressing as any of those other Yeah, guys. which is kind of a nice change. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, a whole bunch of old queens getting together and sharing art and culture in somebody's apartment, that's that's wonderful as well as it is super gay. <laughs> speaking of gay, speaking of ladies, let's move on to Patience and Sarah, uh, an opera by Paula Kemper and libretto by Wendy Persons, first premiered in 1998. Does a central character explicitly identify as gay? Yes, it explores the relationship of the well-to-do heiress Patience who falls in love with poor farmer's daughter, Sarah. It's considered the first lesbian opera and kind of the first mainstream gay opera. Is there a character central to the plot? Yes. Is there a meet-cute? Officially, yes. The novel, which the opera is pretty close to, has a firewood delivery, so add an extra lumberjack sturdy There you go. Is there a same-sex kiss? Yes, five points there. Is there nudity? Again, these are lesbians in the early uh, 19th century, so no. Is there a sex scene? There's also too many no. layers of clothing for you to get naked. It's like, <laughs> yes. that's like, like 20 minutes to time? get undressed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the bustle, the corset. Who has the time? The fast change is, cannot happen. 
Absolutely. Is there a happy outcome for the gay character? Lesbians leave to go upstate and start a farm together, so I'm going to say yes. And probably uh, a bakery. Absolutely. <laughs> is the composer or the librettist out? Yes. And this is where we're going to make up some points in the bonus rounds, because the composer and the librettist were actually together for a period of time, so I lobbied the Five bonus points there. Again, for the drag stage, these are early 19th century ladies. They weren't exactly known for their opulence, so I wouldn't necessarily put them up on the drag stage. But all in all, with the bonus points, coming through to take the lead for 60 points for Patience and Sarah. Nice, nice. You might be sitting there wondering, when are we going to get to the opera based on America's gayest play? And yes. that time is now. <laughs> Because we're talking about Angels in America by Peter Etvish, which takes the seven-hour gay fantasia on nationalist themes by Tony Kushner and transforms it into a two-and-a-half-ish hour opera with all of the gayness and none of the Reagan-hating, which for me is a con, <laughs> but what can you do? Um, if you're going to ask how many characters in Angels in America identify as gay, we're going to round down to three for the three <laughs> main characters. <laughs> And give it 30 points. Uh, and we'll just do... the. the I don't know if central is really a, a word that describes to something this sprawling. So just one 10-point uh, bank for, some, for all of those gay characters being central to the plot. Um, two of those characters, Joe, the closeted Mormon, and Lewis, uh, do meet up in, uh, in New York City and have a share both the same six kiss... And a sex scene, uh, and wow. I believe Pryor uh, is naked in uh, <gasps> at the end of Act One when oh, he wow. is uh, wow. thinking back Jeez. over his life while the next production while dying from AIDS because <laughs> oh. uh, it is Angels <laughs> in America. You you might have forgotten. Uh, with that, there is no happy outcome really for anyone, <laughs> yeah, but there sense. is a somewhat ambivalent outcome, and you know it's a, it's hopeful, but I would not call it happy. Um, the Angel, the opera is by the husband and wife team, uh, Peter Etvish and Mari Mazei, so not a lot of gayness there, though the source material is by Tony Kushner, who is very gay. Um, but if you're wondering which character from this long and sprawling work of dramatic art would transition seamlessly to the drag stage, think no further than the titular angel in America. So that's the new leader, 65 points, Angels in America. Wow, is that uh, Not hard for to long. Not for long. If you thought that was as gay as it was going to get, hold on to your butts. <laughs> Here comes Hadrian. It is an opera by Rufus Wainwright. Do I need to say anything else? I mean. An opera <laughs> no. by Rufus Wainwright. So Hadrian, like I said, is Wainwright's second opera after his not as successful prima donna. The libretto is by, excuse me, the libretto is by Daniel McIver, first premiered in 2018 with the Canadian Opera Company. Does the character explicitly identify as gay? Yes. This is based on the life of Hadrian, who was a Roman emperor from 117 to 138. Yes, those are the years. Uh, it covers his relationship with Antonus, who has drowned. Is there a gay character central to the plot? Yes, title and supporting. That gives us 10 points. Is there a mute cute? Not exactly, as the show opens with one of them being deceased. 
Is there a same-sex kiss? <laughs> I'm actually going to say yes, as the entire opening of Act 3 is a love scene, complete with the sexual relations between them. Uh, <laughs> is there nudity? Yes. Plus the dancers. Boy, howdy. Check out the footage from COC. It is lovely. Is there a sex scene? Yes. See aforementioned mentioning of Act 3. Is there a happy outcome for the gay character? This depends. Con. His lover has drowned, and he is in a loveless marriage with a woman. Pro, he's still the commander-in-chief of the Western world, so we're going to give it to him and say yes. <laughs> he's one of the five good emperors. There you go. Yeah, he's pretty if, good. Is the composer or librettist out? Yes to both. Would any main I mean, characters... he should really get extra points. <laughs> for being Rufus Wainwright. Yes. Secretly 45. I really didn't lobby hard enough. Uh, would any of these characters seemingly transition to the drag stage? Yes, and I can say it in four words. Karita Matila as Plotina. If you have not seen the footage of You could have stopped after two her... words. I really could have, but I wanted to make sure you knew it. There's amazing footage on Canadian Opera Company's website, uh, and I believe you can get to it through Rufus's uh, website as well. But yes, her her costumes first of all she's fabulous the aria is bluesy and beautiful uh but the costumes itself i mean you could plop that on a drag stage at roscoe's on a tuesday night any day <laughs> and with that we have our new leader with 70 points oh i think i might have one that can just barely barely somehow beat Take out it, <laughs> Rufus Ray wainwright we have fellow travelers by the two gregs uh, Spears and Pierce. Uh, we've got two uh, very explicitly gay uh, characters who are central to the plot. They have a meet cute right there in that first scene on that park bench talking about drinking milk. Uh, there is uh, there is a kiss. The beverage. There is a sex scene. I believe there was nudity, uh, nudity in the original production, as I recall. There is an I would I would call it a uh, I would call it a fairly uh, happy outcome. I think they they end on good terms. If you don't know the opera, it's all okay. about the lavender scare. Yeah, uh, I think uh, it's okay. Oh, Hit me, I Oliver. Mean, no, no. I mean, like we're, we're we're trying to get to the end of this, but I think we need a ruling from our referee because oh, yes, absolutely. Listening. Are the characters explicitly gay? Uh, the character, the baritone character, isn't he? Doesn't he stay in the closet? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, okay. If you're talking about the text, he is explicitly yeah. gay in the text. As a character, is he explicitly gay? That might be. That might be a ruling for you, George. Um, is the character explicitly gay? More than less. More than less. Okay. Yes, he is okay, more explicitly gay than he's not implicitly gay. Thank you, George. Dana, I was he's, George Cedarquist has weighed in. What, what it's I'm too saying... bad that we're that we're just podcast only because I'm currently doing the referee's hand gesture for <laughs> so, implicitly gay. What, what I'm saying here is I'm not arguing that these characters are homosexuals, uh, but are is the baritone character? I forget, I forget his name. Uh, has a really cool name too. Um, is he gay or does he stay in the closet? I mean, he he's pretty out at the beginning, and then he goes back into the closet. I don't know where you would where you would rank that, you know? Okay. Because the whole point is that you, they can't really be out and proud in uh, okay. during the lavender no, scare. I, yeah. <laughs> I think okay. I'll, I'm going to keep those points. I'm gonna you, you can rest them for my cold dead hands, <laughs> much like Mister Green from the movie Clue. <laughs> uh, I I think similarly we'll have uh, even though it's not like the 
I, I think they end on good terms. I don't think that there's necessary uh, that it's uh, not like the happiest ending, but it really does end on a hopeful note. Very literally, there uh, it's a it's a really nice ending, which in stark contrast, I think, to a lot of these horrible deaths we've been seeing. So I think I will give that uh, a few points as well. I don't think that you can convincingly say that either the leads would make a great <laughs> drag character, but I don't think they need to because if you add up all those points, I'm coming up with 75 points. By a gay nose, fellow travelers. Yeah. And if you, if you want a happy ending, then Patience and Sarah and potentially Hadrian, uh, if you don't mind that your lover is dead. But um, yes, for, for the gayest, for the most titillating yeah, visuals... Wow. Uh, for a real gay topic and for a gay-ass composer and libretto, uh, it's going to go to fellow travelers, everybody. Congratulations, Amazing. you win! Fellow travelers! <laughs> <laughs> when harmony earth wakes, last night, how many kisses, last Tell us what you think about opera's gayest piece, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice memo as well. And again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. A little bit of sports before we get into the two-minute drill. Ashley Hardgrave, what's up with the World Cup? Uh, this is a little hilarious sidebar conversation that's been all over the TikToks or the TikToks if you're more <laughs> weird like me. Uh, yeah, so basically, it for since forever, Nigeria and Argentina like meet up in the prelims for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. This year, <laughs> Nigeria did not qualify, and everybody in both of those countries is actually really bummed about it. So there's this whole like subreddit of memes that are out about like Argentina <laughs> like sitting on a bench near a waterfall by themselves, and it's like waiting for Nigeria who will never come to World Cup. It's uh, there's all these really <laughs> hilarious memes hard. about. <laughs> about how Argentina is super sad that their buddy Nigeria is not coming to the big dance. So, yes, if you Google Nigeria, Argentina, World Cup meme, some of them will be in Spanish, but they're very entertaining. Do any of them say, don't cry for me, Argentina? Because if not, oh, that's a real missed opportunity. <laughs> missed opportunity. Oliver, the French Open in the it, books. We're getting ready for the grass court season, but Can't the... The clay court season ended actually the way you would expect it to end, except it was a different path to get there. Um, Rafael Nadal did win his 14th 
Grand Slam, making him the most winning Grand Slam man in uh, tennis history, except for Rod Laver. 22 Grand Slams. And he did it with an injured foot. And he had... And vaccination. (laughs) He did it with two of the most difficult matches in the quarterfinals and semifinals. Quarterfinals to Novak Djokovic he beat in four sets, which could have been the final. It was that exciting of a show. And then a heartbreaker of a semifinal against uh, Sasha Zverev, who rolled over his ankle and tore ligaments. And Ouch. they showed it in slow motion. Ooh. And I almost threw up in my mouth. It was, yeah. hor- yeah. it was like, horrifying. That doesn't go that direction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the final against the Norwegian debutante, Casper Ruud, was a snooze fest. Uh, yeah. Raphael beat him handily. Straight we're not sets, talking about right? straight sets, uh, bagel in the third set. Um, Iga Sviatek uh, was the women's champion. She has been, uh, she has not lost on clay this year. So I think it was like 31 or 30 matches straight on clay. So she was destined to win and she beat the 18 year old Coco Golf, who has a huge future ahead of her. Uh, we love you, Coco Golf. And, of course, we love you, Ashley Hargrave. you got to get out of here. Get to a gig. I do's. I do's. Uh, the work with Chicago Symphony Orchestra never stops, and I have rehearsal very shortly. So, guys, have a great two-minute drill. I will see you all next week. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Opera in Kiev is back. The city's opera house reopened with a performance of Barber of Seville, even as fighting continues in the eastern part of the country. Performances at the house are open to small audiences on weekend afternoons only to facilitate rapid evacuation in case of an air raid. Anna Natrepko has said she had no plans to sing in Russia in the immediate future, saying she wanted peace again between Russia and Ukraine. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Berlin State Opera announced that Natrepko would sing there in 2023, following a conversation with General Director Matthias Schulz. Quote, on the one hand, full solidarity with Ukraine is important to me, and on the other hand, so is dealing with our artists responsibly, said Matthias Schultz. A petition has been launched to save a villa that once belonged to Verdi from auction. The house had been used as a museum for years while an ownership dispute raged between Verdi's descendants. It seems like a few thousand Italians would like to keep it that way. Last month, a group of migrants performed an opera in Tijuana, Mexico, dramatizing their own experiences trying to reach the United States. Virtual reality Baroque opera tells the story of a 15-year-old and her mother fleeing gang violence in Guatemala, only to be sent to Mexico by U.S. authorities to await their asylum proceedings. Quote, this opera has been a total change in my life, said actor Carla Patricia. It's something that has touched me in my heart, and I'm very happy dancing. Famously low-drama tenor Roberto Alagna has offered an explanation for his high-profile withdrawal from the Grand Teatro del Liceu's upcoming production of Tosca, Artistic Differences with the Director. Alagna claims he learned from the company's season announcement that the production had been changed to Rafael Villalobos' controversial, controversial 2021 staging based on the film Salo or The 120 Days of Sodom, which Alagna reportedly found so obscene that he threw in the trash. As audiences are astounded to see Bradley Cooper as a doppelganger for Leonard Bernstein in the upcoming Netflix biopic, angry social media users have pointed out part of Cooper's transformation involved a prosthetic nose, something that many found to be anti-Semitic, especially since Bradley Cooper is not Jewish. 
Germany has bumped up its culture budget by 2.3 billion euros, a 7% increase over last year's budget, with over 5 million euros specifically earmarked each for measures against right-wing extremism and racism, addressing the ongoing effects of colonialism in the global south, and adopting more climate-conscious business practices, said Cultural Minister Claudia Roth. With the budget, the members of the Bundestag are specifically strengthening the arts, culture, and media in the face of the unprecedented crises of our time. Hey, can we get some of that energy over here in the U.S. of A, please? <laughs> in trade news, following a unanimous vote, Cecilia Bartoli has been named the new president of Europa Nostra. Headquartered at The Hague, the EN is Europe's cultural lobby tasked with preserving European heritage. Bartoli will accept the president title from outgoing Europa Nostra president Plasto Domingo. Glimmer Glass Opera has chosen Robert Ainsley to succeed Francesca Zambello as the company's artistic director. Ainsley's the head of the Kafritz Young Artists Program and the American Opera Initiative at Washington National Opera, where Zambello is his boss. Ainsley aims to, quote, make this an art form for everyone, telling everyone's story and trying to ensure everyone has agency in how those stories are told. Cheska finishes her 11-year run at Glimmer Glass this summer. Exit stage right, English mezzo-soprano Anne Howells has died at 81. Her career as one of the opera world's greatest comedians spanned three decades. After she retired from the stage, Howells was a sought-after teacher at the Royal Academy of Music. And on this day, June 6th in 1869, Siegfried Wagner was born to Ricard and Cosma Wagner. In 1915, American composer Vincent Pereschetti was born in Philadelphia. 1921 saw the first performance of Paul Hindemith's uh, one-act opera, Murder, Hoffnung der Frauen, or Murder, Hope, and <laughs> Woman. In 1924, it was the first performance of Erwartung, a monodrama by Arnold Schoenberg, one of Weston's favorites. A Bob, yes. <laughs> in 1928, the Egyptian Helen premiered in Dresden. That's by Richard Strauss, of course. And in 1939, uh, we celebrate the birth of Spanish tenor Giacomo Aragal. That's your two-minute trail. That was Anne Howells singing the role of Agno in the Jean-Pierre Ponel film of La Clemenza di Tito. Famously hilarious role. <laughs> <laughs> you sing one duet, you sing one aria, you go home happy. What do you say? <laughs> no, you get, you get two arias. There's two two arias, arias. That's right. Yeah. That's right. One, in, act, very, one in each act. They're, they're actually awkwardly high. So Agno is a hard role to cast, I'm going to say. Apparently, another popular film is Salo or The 120 Days of Sodom. I mean, who... Uh... <laughs> Who doesn't want to watch that about the uh, collaborating regime in uh, in Italy with lots and lots and lots of debauchery? 
Yes. Well, uh, apparently, Roberto Bolaño doesn't want to watch it. He and he doesn't want, want to. and he doesn't want Alexander Korsak to watch it either. Neither yeah. of them are allowed to did, be in this did production. Did he throw the DVD in the trash, or did he throw up in? He the threw trash? the DVD in the trash. Is what uh, is allegedly what he said. Okay, yes. let's let's make this really clear. First of all, artistic references with the director is the most hackneyed excuse used. Uh, this business. He's claiming over. that Lisu uh, did a little bait switch and told them that they were going to do the old product, their old production, and then in their new season announcement it turns out that they're doing no. this controversial new one no. by via no 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 <laughs> are even you the so, most are, inept are, i'm sorry i'm artistic sorry George. directors would would pull that trick george are you trying to say that roberto alanya is not a good faith actor in terms of contract <laughs> negotiations <laughs> i'm going to talk about how we throw things in the trash and protest in the 21st century like if you get like uh, a gift card you know and you get the code you know do you like take the code and scratch it out like how do you in the digital era like how do you discard something in a way that shows your protest you, you know you block i think you block it right blocking yeah. is the way to go and then you post a little screenshot screen yeah. yeah 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 for <laughs> yeah, everyone you're, else you're, you're of our you're, you're talking about our generation now okay. oliver so okay. we, Puzzle, we know Puzzolini, we you covered Puzzolini, you're blocked <laughs> <laughs> Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. George is on top of all of the mailings. You'll get a beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just what a deal. for sharing your own hot take. And it'll cost less than Germany's new arts budget. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh God! I, I I think it's I think honestly it's it's great. I think I, I like that they earmarked a lot of this stuff specifically for uh, talking about the effects of colonialism, uh, climate change initiatives in the arts and culture. Uh, it it just so it's it's so strange to me coming from America where you know you just kind of fight over whatever pittance you can get uh, to put on an opera or any other artistic thing, really. But the fact that this is like, you know, uh, a, a, such a huge increase um, right after, you know, I say after uh, in in the, this stage of the pandemic, too, is just really kind of extraordinary to me. And I wish certain places like the U.S. Yeah. would do this, too. That's the important step, right? Five million euros for each of these measures is, is awesome. How far will that take them? We do. We don't really know. But to increase a budget by seven percent, to increase yeah. a budget by one percent at that level is phenomenal. Unless it's the uh, uh, American military budget. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> I also think that this is a, a really interesting uh, petition here um, to save the villa that once belonged to uh, J- Joe Green uh, in Italy, who you might have heard of. <laughs> this uh, is not Casa Verdi. This is something else, right? No, no, this is it's not the Casa Villa, Verdi. It's the Villa Verdi. Okay. This and is the Villa Verdi. <laughs> and it's uh, this petition, thankfully, starts with an open letter or nothing would get done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I a full disclosure i did sign this letter even though i feel like uh it's probably Wait, a done you deal actually signed that letter oh it, it's like a change.org petition it's it's great there you can see how many people have signed and you can like distribute it to all your facebook friends did did you share your bank details at the uh, same yeah time absolutely i did okay. um it's okay my identity's already been stolen so many times it doesn't matter at this point point. and you uh, forwarded to your 17 closest friends <laughs> so that the Nigerian prince luck. living in the Villa Verdi can get his The Nigerian back. prince Giuseppe Verdi. They no, just I, want I, the money so they can play Argentina. Well, basically, the 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 the, the whole dispute over this uh, over this villa is really complicated, 
and I don't fully understand it because I don't under understand Italian law. Uh, but essentially, a lot of the descendants, um, basically, this was sort of the compromise they reached was to just auction off the villa somewhere. Um, because they couldn't figure out who owned it, and they're gonna like split the profits or something. I'm not a entirely real, sure. A real Solomon splitting the baby. Kind yeah, of a exactly. Situation. And um, but it turns out that the Italian public and people like me who gave out their uh, bank account numbers to Change.org um, uh, really do think that um, maybe something of that significance probably should belong to the Ministry of Culture in Italy and made into a museum permanently. Um, because who knows what kind of a uh, person is just gonna snap it up and just you know turn it into another, uh, uh, you know, vacation home in southern Italy somewhere. Um, I, I, I really hope that they reconsider. I really hope it winds up with the government somehow. But uh, we'll see what happens there. I'll keep you updated and I'll let you know what my bank account does in the next week. Well, that whatever happens, that's a resolution that's almost as heartwarming as the opera in Kiev opening back up after mm. uh months of th i think i think it's been three months or so yeah about at this three point, months time yeah. is yeah. a bit of a flat circle and i'm sure that how we feel is nothing compared to how they feel in keith mm -hmm. but reading some of the quotes of the singers in that production about uh like the soprano who's singing the role of rosina olga formichova says i had this feeling this morning that i was coming to sing a premiere even though i've been singing this role for years i feel like i'm coming out onto the stage again which i know so well for the first time just yeah. like returning to an old life that Phenomenal. has been unimaginable imaginable for weeks at this point yeah and still and they're still in a state of war i mean it's uh, the reason they are able to open at all is because of the limited att uh, attendance and the fact that most of the fighting seems to be relegated to the eastern part of the country at least for the moment um and it, it really is interesting. I believe that they started with Barbara of Seville. Uh, the next opera they're going to do is uh, a Ukrainian opera, and they're going to sort of alternate like that uh, and try to sort of reclaim some of their culture in defiance of what's going on over there. It's uh, really fascinating. I hope, well, I hope the war ends at some point relatively soon, but we'll see what happens there. But I think in the meantime, I think there's a really inspiring sort of act of defiance against what's going on. Um, during the invasion. So I, I, I was really inspired to read this story. Before we wrap it up, I'd love to point out the contrast in the trade news between how everybody categorically loves Cecilia Bartoli as an artist, <laughs> as a leader, as an administrator. And then we find ourselves like continuing to be disentangled with um, Placido Domingo. You can't escape him. He's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, uh, and the like Phantom of the Opera. I mean, no, no sh uh, uh, shade on Francesca Zambello, but you know they are closely tied. And the Cuffritz Young Artist Program, we know what name is missing from that Young Artist Program, and we know affiliations with Washington, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's just like it's like one degree of separation, you know. Yeah, um, it, it's also a good a good reminder to like not. You know, I mean, obviously, a certain amount of networking. Everyone knows each other when they're, you know, in opera or the arts in general. Um, but it, it really goes to show how much giving too much power to any one person can be. And like, you know, for every like, you know, donor or or singer whose name you see, who's perfectly lovely person who you see on all sorts of opera company web pages, then there's something like Placido Domingo. You just can't like not be reminded. Um, 
It, it really, it really is something. I'm, I'm glad that Cecilia is taking over <laughs> at Europa Nostra. I have no idea what her role is or what it even does, but it sounds important. So I hope she does. It sounds a... like the EU of operas. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <It does. right. laughs> she's been given unprecedented power, or the United she Nations cannot be stopped. <laughs> she can, she can park wherever she wants in Europe with impunity. <laughs> Most definitely. Let us wrap up this show. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Great to have the team back together. Great to be back podcast only. We got some changes we're going to be making over the summer as we head into season eight this fall. You want to make sure you stick around and you stay close to this podcast, Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, good call or bad call? I've got two quick good ones. Uh, I saw the HD broadcast of Hamlet uh, by Brett Dean, starring friends of the show, uh, Brenda Ray. Christopher Lowry and and um, and Aria Nussbaum-Cohn, uh, they were all fantastic. But Alan Clayton was incredible, absolutely incredible in this role. And I didn't care that much for the music, but the show is thrilling and he should win all the awards. And I cannot wait for him to come back next year as Peter Grimes. Uh, just incredible vocal technique, stage beast, and just uh, he he could act this play like the straight version of the play he was that good i was just so captivated by his performance congratulations to him and also this is a little bit old news but uh if you have not seen it yet there is a feature on jonas kaufman uh from 60 minutes it came out like two weeks ago and it was great and congratulations to jonas kaufman's pr team for allowing that to happen and they followed kaufman around for like five years and they got mm. footage of him rehearsing and warming up at different opera houses um he looked great he sounded incredible and it was he's a great ambassador for opera for people who watch 60 minutes which are like you know old people <laughs> most of them are probably <laughs> opera fans already um i'm dying to know though is there any footage of him recording the christmas album <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't. Darn oh, it. <laughs> it's garbage. I don't Throw want it in the trash like Roberto Alanya. Would that be a good call or a bad call, Matt? Uh, depends on your your notes on camp. <laughs> but your actual bad call, Matt. I do have a bad call, and it's going to the Guinness Book of World Records for kicking off yet another round of "Is this child an opera singer?" discourse, oh, which every Stop. singers. Brace yourselves, because the clips are coming. They will be sent to you by a t- by text, via your Facebook feed. <laughs> Every well-meaning person who's ever heard you sing in your life will be sending you this yes. and wanting to know what you think. And really, what I think is that it's too bad that this young girl is getting... Uh, her, and this is about Victory Brinker, who, who had ten years a... Old. Ten years old. A viral video of her singing Queen of the Night was going around a couple months ago, weeks ago. What did I say about time? Um, and <laughs> these, this discourse always just inflates, con- sorry, conflates the opera singing with any kind of classical technique at all. And it puts right. impossible mm-hmm. expectations on these children mm-hmm. who yeah. have to, you, you know, get trotted out in all these dog and pony shows and get all the media attention and, and that can really make the feelings of singing complicated as as you've heard like as we've heard from people who have been through the cycle before like charlotte church is one right. who comes to mind like it just is a really toxic world of publicity that does n- neither the child nor the art form of opera any favors at all um so thanks guinness for that <sighs> weston williams 
I've got a good call. The New York Times uh, had us an exclusive uh, story, which is actually just a real estate advertisement in disguise because it is about Anthony Roth Costanzo, friend of the show, famed countertenor, uh, uh, selling his first home, his one bedroom co-op in New York uh, for $965,000, which, oh boy, that's a chunk of change, but it is New York, I suppose. Uh, So if you have $965,000 and are a fan of Anthony Roth Costanzo, uh, this might be your one and only chance to really accomplish something with those two very strange coinciding things about yourself. Um, uh, thank you, New York Times, for telling me all about how nice Anthony Roth Costanzo's house is. How the other half lives. Okay, look, my son is not a Pennsylvania girl who's 10 years old doing opera, but he was in the middle school musical last weekend when he played Drink? Jack in Into the Woods Jr., and he did a phenomenal job. I'm super proud Aww. of him. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you fact-check which composers are gay and which operas have the best nudity. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more happy endings for the gay characters. Join us.